0: back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. My name is Karis Fox and I am your current host for this season. You are currently listening to Legacy Part 2. If you missed Legacy Part 1, I encourage you to listen to it beforehand, as all episodes from this series are interconnected. I also encourage you to listen to Season 5, Episode 7, If You Want the History of a White Man, You Go to the Library, A Conversation on Archives at the University of Denver. That episode offers a background into understanding how libraries are contemporary examples of institutional racism, as well as how racism and exclusion exists within the archives at the University of Denver, which guests, on that episode, Denise Solis, Kate Crow, and Lauren Turner are fighting to change. Much of Legacy Part 2 centers the research and documentation processes of student leaders, As will be introduced, documentation of students of color at DU is often difficult to find or systematically presented in ways to push specific narratives. These current students and alumni continue to change this by covering stories of those of diverse backgrounds and ensuring that their stories are told authentically. Through their research, these students uncover existing inequities at the University of Denver and strive to inform and empower the DU community to truly embark upon, quote unquote inclusive excellence. Of course, their efforts are not always received with praise. Before diving into the episode, I want to define some of the terms that we're going to be working with. Throughout this episode, you'll hear of specific programs and organizations. The Access and Transition Programs include Denver Promise, Equity in STEM or ESTEM, Volunteers in Partnership or VIP, OneGenU, and Excelling Leaders Institute or ELI. Access and Transitions is a division of DU Student Affairs, dedicated to helping Pathways program first generation, minoritized, and other underrepresented students succeed. The affinity organizations at DU include African Students United, Asian Student Alliance, Black Student Alliance, Hillel, International Student Organization, Latine Student Alliance, Muslim Student Association, Pacific Islander Alliance, Native Student Alliance, Greer Student Alliance, South Asian Student Alliance, and Vietnamese Student Association. The affinity organizations are run by undergraduate unpaid students. The DU Clarion is the official newspaper of the University of Denver. All information to learn more about the access and transition programs, affinity organizations, or the DU Clarion will be made available to you in links in the description box below. I am joined today by guests Grace Carson, Kiana Marsan, Andrea Macias, and Brianna Aguilar to have a conversation with me to discuss their work and their findings. To begin, I'll have each speaker introduce their work to you and then we'll dive into their findings and any backlash that they received from their work. The first speaker will be Grace Carson, who is a former executive editor of the Clarion and is the author of the blog, Do Well Native? which she describes as a five-part series explaining the unique situation in which Indigenous students find themselves as they attend DU. I asked Grace to first introduce to me the process of getting the blog, DU While Native, started up, as well as what motivated her to initially create the blog. It was a lot. <laughs> I luckily, I
1: did it through an independent study with uh, Professor uh, Clark. Um, Lynn Clark and we did um she was my advisor through the journalism school and I did it to do a distinction um for journalism and so luckily like I was getting like something out of it too but it's actually it came like my idea from it came not so much for me wanting to like have extra credit and wanting to do this it came more so because I was really worried that once I left and once my class left that everyone was gonna forget uh, what happened and um, what has happened, not just in my generation of, of DU student, Native students, but also in the generations that came before us. So at that time, Vicki Eagle was the Native American pre, uh, program coordinator, but she was leaving. Uh, we actually both ended up going to UCLA, her for a uh, PhD in archeology span and me uh, for law. Um, and I just worried like with Vicki leaving, it was me leaving, like I was just worried that all of these stories were gonna just like disappear and there was gonna be no institutional knowledge. Um, And so luckily, like my advisors were super supportive and was like, well, let's make this like a project. Um, And that's how it kind of came about. I definitely worked on it at least 10 hours a week, if not more. Um, because a part of it was also like podcasting, which I'm sure you know is like a lot of work because it's like interviews, but it's also editing. Um, and the editing, I was literally like go crazy. <laughs> I hated it, but it was good. Um, yeah, and so just writing down these stories as well, um, I, I was definitely worth it. It was one of the best things I think I did in undergrad and could do. Um, and it was definitely I remember doing it and being like, this is it. This is my final thing I give to you. Um, I can't. I can't do it after this. I mean, I had like one quarter left after that, but I was like, "This is my love letter, uh, maybe not like a love letter, silly, but like this is my my care and love that I have for my communities uh, who are going to DU, who will go to DU. This is what I have. I can't do it anymore."
2: What you had just said about it being your love letter, not love letter to DU, is exactly mm-hmm. what this series is for me. Yeah, because it's like this. I'm leaving, and, and I've given a lot, and I'm fed up. Yeah, and, and I don't want all of the advocacy that people have done, all of what they've gone through to, I loved how you said it, to be erased, essentially.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that yeah. there's this erasure of institutional knowledge
0: that mm-hmm. happens. Next, I spoke with Kiana Marsan, the former editor-in-chief of the DU Clarion, to discuss her work and specifically her series On the Margins.
3: I think that was one of my main goals when I,
0: got into my position
3: is that like most groups on campus, the Clarion is predominantly white. And I very quickly realized that a lot of the students of color on campus who were in affinity orgs wanted, you know, to see their stories in our paper, wanted to see them being talked about and seen and represented, but they, in many cases, just didn't have the energy because of all the other things that they were doing running an affinity org organizing protests, dealing with like daily life as a student, um, and I kind of realized that the onus really needed to kind of be on me, on the writers at the Clarion, to interview those students, to do that labor, do that work of writing it, of putting it to paper, and of publishing it. I started a series along with another editor, Isaiah, called On the Margins, and it was essentially I was trying to interview um, as many student affinity orgs as I could on campus and really just kind of memorialize their lived experience on this predominantly white campus and historicize their perspectives on DU um, and how it's really failing so many students who come from marginalized backgrounds what was driving me was just kind of like the fear of like having these histories erased and being less visible than they should be because for most students when they um, like are applying to du they like don't know any of this history you find out afterwards you find out from going here from talking to people um, what the climate is actually like for students of color and it was important to me to like be part of that process of making sure like these counter narratives to all the like marketing materials that DU puts out with all our um, faces on it, <laughs> you know, was being counteracted with something that there were resources available for people if they wanted to find out about like the RAR protest or the We Can Do Better protest or anything like that.
0: My next guest is Brianna Aguilar, who embarked upon creating a video testimony of student leaders and created a space in which student leaders could express their experiences. So
4: I want to say it was spring quarter of 2021. This is when I was secretary of diversity committee. We, again, we were still dealing with the challenges of the pandemic. We were still dealing with, you know, all the missed demands that this university didn't give us and I just felt like you know being with student leaders you could tell there was so much burnout in all of us like you know even student affinity groups we really just were like trying to put on the best programs we can but even then we were so tired and exhausted honestly I was like I've never seen anyone here do like a a video so I came up with this idea and I brought it to um, DIFCOM, like our eboard. and I was like, hey, I want to do a video project you know, on student leaders and interviewing them. And it was me and Dr. Johnny Ramirez. And really what the idea was, is I had maybe like eight to, to nine questions that were related to their student leadership experiences. And um, it was really focused on their experience as a student leader. And getting what you know their feedback and really having them telling their lived experience of being on this university and giving them that voice, you know, because I felt like I was like, who's doing like who's supporting us at the end of the day? Who's gonna let us actually like feel like we're being heard and listened to, you know? So I was like, yeah, let me do these recordings. And I created like a little form of like to get interest and to get people um, to be interviewed again, too, I, I also recognize that not everyone wanted to talk about things again. Um, but I wanted this video to be two themes. One, uh, to be a message from student leaders, like to really be a message from student leaders to the university of like, hey, this is our experiences, you know. That was really the other thing where I wanted to highlight that student leaders who were not getting compensated after they talked about all the stuff they went through and all the stuff they do. It was like, on top of that, nobody's getting paid. Like, you know, like, and that's hard work that honestly, the university should have professional staff doing. Do they do it? No, they don't. And that's the frustrating part. But that's what I want in that first part. The second part was supposed to be a thank you and a dedication to student leaders, because like I said, it wasn't always, you know, all the time, just like planning, planning protests, or like, you know, always about focusing, like, you know, what are we going to call for action today, it was really fun things, like, we had dances, we had, you know, little, like, hangouts, and, like, presentations, or, like, workshops, where it was, like, fun, and you got free food, and you got t-shirts, you know, I have so many t-shirts in my closet, like, from student orgs, I'm like, yo, like, I'm good. Like I'm set. And it's just like those fun times again, like the student dances. Those were so like, those are so fun. And like, it's cute. Like, I think it's kind of like, you know, everyone gets together and it's kind of like the club, but also like a school dance. Like it's kind of weird, but like in a good way. Um, And that's what the other thing I wanted to show, like, you know, like there's a, there's still a reason we do this type of work. And it's like, you know, having other students feel like they're welcomed, having students feel like they belong
0: here on campus and feeling like they are seen, you know, not invisible here. My next guest, Andrea Macias, headed a research project to create a timeline of student activism at DU from the 60s to the present day.
5: I started wanting to do an independent study. Um, I really like research. People think that that's kind of weird of me that I I liked history and I liked research. but no, I love it. And so I wanted to do an independent study or some kind of research project. And I initially wanted to do it around inequities within the education system based on race um, and ethnicity. And I had a fantastic major advisor, um, Dr. Elizabeth Escobedo. Um, And so when I sat with her and I was like, I want to do this. And she was like, okay, well, that's pretty broad, like, but we need to come up with something, but for sure, like, that totally ties in what you're studying and what your areas of interest are. And so then she had told me that the provost, um, at that point, Mary Clark, um, or Provost Lanksfield, asked for a timeline about student activism from DU, just a very specific timeline. And she's like, if you want, like, I'll give you that project. It's kind of what you were looking for in terms of like topic and everything. But, like, you would be more suited to do it anyways than I am Um, because I I was really involved. I forgot to mention I was in 1GenU, so I was a first-generation college graduate, um, which was very important to me and my family. But, yeah, I was involved in 1GenU, LSA, PLC, like, and a lot of other things. So, yeah, I kind of started there, and she was like, I'll let her know that you're going to do it and since it's a project like you need to do 10 weeks of research so you could really take it in any direction that you wanted to um and so i was like well great because i got a lot of feelings and a lot of things to say about everything that is happening um and that's kind of where it started
0: next i asked my guests to walk me through what their research or their projects revealed to them about existence at the university of denver
5: just some trends that i noticed like A lot of it had to do with what was going on in the world at the time. Um, So like if, I don't know if you've seen like my actual presentation, but the presentation I had, I divided it into like 20 year segments or decade, three different decades. Um, And a lot of it just had to do with what was going on in the world at that time. A lot of it was national, uh, then it was more international and also just local. Um, And so that was like a lot of the trends that I noticed. Um, It just definitely had to do with what historical events were going on around us. And um, one thing that I pushed for after doing the project was making sure all of our, at least our student affinity group started documenting um, what they were doing, even if it was just their meetings um, or like LSA we created an archive I was like yeah even if we're just playing loteria like document that make sure that our existence on this campus is known because a lot of teachers would be like it's in there like you just have to go and look for it I was like I swear to you I am in this archive like it's not here um and they'll count as like one paper 60 years ago mentioned the Black Student Alliance and they're like yeah it's in there and it's like that's not really what in there means but okay great (laughs)
2: so funny because that's literally what I noticed too. And actually the former editor-in-chief of the Clarion had also said that, is that when you're actually looking at things that mention students of color specifically, it's very difficult to find. And I think we embarked upon similar research projects around the same time. And so like, I also experienced that where it was like, it did not seem like you had to dig to find it. And I think that right there kind of points to a little bit of an issue, if you're having to devote so much of this time to find voices that are just completely erased from being documented.
0: Before diving into more of the key takeaways from my guests' research and projects, I want to highlight Season 5, Episode 7, entitled, If You Want the History of a White Man, You Go to the Library a conversation on archives at the University of Denver. In this episode, I speak with Lauren Turner, who is the current archivist of student activism at the Anderson Academic Commons at DU. In this episode, Lauren introduces the shortcomings of the archives in capturing the existence of BIPOC community members at DU. What are some of those tropes?
6: um so similar to like i had mentioned you know all of the photos that i see um in early examples of du's yearbooks of student life it's re- it's related to international festivals international students um it doesn't often i think i found maybe one or two photos of chinese student association members and and they just look like regular people um they're not dressed up in Um, what has been labeled as costumes, but obviously is traditional um, attire. And so it's like you either see them as uh, dancing, parading and teaching the primarily white institution about their culture on a day that is only allotted to do so, or you don't see them at all. So um, it, it would be hard, I can imagine, to um, only see people that look like you in one way, because like you have mentioned, what does that say about how the university truly values um, them as a whole?
0: Later in that episode, Lauren Turner, Denise Solis, and Kate Crow discuss how the affinity organizations have been helpful in admitting prospective students of diverse backgrounds, Specifically, the Black Student Alliance had hosted a Black Student Weekend where 100 prospective students came to the University of Denver. An important reminder about this is that the leaders of Black Student Alliance at the time were all unpaid students. They were neither funded nor aided by the admissions office.
1: Yeah, I was um, at an exhibit, which I'm forgetting the name of. I think it was Mapping Native Denver where a portion of that exhibit was you could put post-its. And one of the post-its was, I think, um, just give, like make tuition free for indigenous students, like for native students. And that's, I mean, the thing too, is these students are leading the change. Students not only have to like do their coursework and schoolwork, but they also have to advocate for themselves. And that's like so much more effort that is not at all recognized anywhere, like at DU, at least, that I've seen. I'm on the outside, I'm, you know, but, and I really think that students of color need to be paid more or given some kind of credit or something because they're doing the work that this institution has not, will not do. Black Student Weekend is a fantastic example of that. Like why was admissions not like paying them to do that? It was
6: all about prospective students. Perspective students of color, and it's like, exactly. doesn't that doubly check up? If we're just talking about checking boxes, doesn't that doubly check a box? Because the planning is off of the admissions table; they're not responsible for it, and the connections that are built, they're not responsible for. And it may increase diversity. Like I, I. It just it feels like then, when we have diversity initiatives, they're a lot less intentional, and they have nothing to do with the students. It's not about the students at all. Um I can I will just add a little bit of background, though, that the black student the Black student weekend was um, organized by the Black Student Alliance um, invited uh, like a hundred high school students from surrounding um, schools in Denver to campus for an overnight visit where they were paired with current black students at DU and were able to attend all of these kind of like community building events um, over one weekend. And some of the archives that we have, some of the documents are related directly to those students. And the way that they talked about the community that they were already seeing at DU is sad. (laughs)
0: The affinity organizations at DU have
6: often created spaces
0: of community for those with marginalized identities. As introduced, both Kiana Marson and Brianna Aguilar's projects focused on capturing the experiences of student leaders on campus. Here are their key takeaways from their projects.
3: There was like a number of similarities in a lot of the interviews that I did, but one of them like I was talking about was that a lot of student activists um, were frankly just exhausted um because of the fact that they were dealing with so much more than um most students at du have to handle they were dealing with classes with work but they were also trying to organize club meetings they were also trying to organize protests and um, all of this work was unpaid and took lot of time and energy especially when most of the time their actions are either ignored or kind of just like placated um, by the institution um, and brushed off and i think that's where a lot of the exhaustion comes from from being constantly told by du and the administrators like thank you so much for all the work you're doing Um, like, I don't know, them pretending to be um, grateful, but then like not matching that gratitude with any sort of like tangible action that would um, reduce the harm that these communities were experiencing on campus. And another trend was that I think across the board from almost all the groups that we interviewed, they mentioned the Pioneer moniker and how they felt like it was one of the um, most clear and largest Um, indicators that DU did not care about their students of color, about their queer students, about their students of marginal status, and, and how DU's continued use of pioneer, continued defense of it is kind of the most obvious sign that they aren't being valued, they aren't being seen, and that the needs of students and privilege, the need of white students is being placed above theirs.
4: It was uh, around 30 people that ended up interviewing. And um, the questions, for example, like I think the first question I asked is like, um, what are you involved in and why did you get involved in it? And there were so many common themes. There was one thing specifically that I asked student leaders of like, what can your university do better in order to support you as a student leader? and everyone again like I did not like rig anyone's questions I didn't tell it hey can you say this before like no this was all just right on the spot like a lot of people too like didn't know what the questions were 100% going to be I, unless they asked for it like people were like hey can I get the questions ahead of time I will give it like right there's other people that I was like I'm okay like I'm gonna just show it like you know it's fine and like all the common themes in that question I asked about like what this university can do everyone I feel like mentioned that this university needs to listen to them. And it was showing that there was obviously that the university doesn't listen to demands of students from BIPOC or, you know, marginalized and underrepresented communities here on campus. The common theme literally for those students here at DU was to get rid of the moniker. Literally. A lot literally, I wanna say 75% of those interviews was the first thing they said was get rid of the moniker. Like that was everyone's number one thing that they said. They said, if this university can get rid of the moniker, at least they're showing that they're listening to us. The other thing was um, providing support outside, you know, of like, cause a lot of the support of student leadership here falls on a lot of like um, the cultural center or, you know, access and transitions because they help a lot with already student outreach and support in those communities. But it was, like, they already have so much casework and caseload that, like, they were making us go to support, first of all, that's already, like, so, so understaffed and so underfunded that was, like, why can't you all actually create something for us, like, in support of, like, an actual center, you know, like, um these multiple different like mental health research like where is that like it was like there's no support there's no one like for example what i did in that interview of getting students why is there no one that's professional staff going around checking on us like that as you know student leaders and they were saying you know like there's there's no support in that the university doesn't give us you know like more like we have to fight for our money to get like programming money you
0: know at the rage podcast We have no issues in recognizing the emotions that injustice in our society and in our institution create. The title of this podcast specifically was created to call attention to the emotional, professional, and even physical risks being undertaken by race scholars that are either taken for granted or ignored altogether in higher education. In academia, students and scholars are encouraged to separate their emotions from their work but I would argue that emotions are what make us human and able to express empathy with those around us.
5: I can be very wise and analytical about everything, but I also can be very emotional, especially when things that I care about. There were a lot of times that I was sitting there in tears working on this project and remind you, we were at home, like we were all in quarantine, um so I would like sit at my kitchen table and I would just like be so upset and my mom would be like what's wrong like are you okay I was like I'm so pissed like I'm so mad and I just want to tell them all off but I can't like somebody here has to be the third party somebody here has to be the objective one and for me that was very hard in that moment because a lot of these people they weren't just like oh like people i i investigated or people i researched like they were my friends they were people that i considered friends or like close individuals to me or even acquaintances i was like i'm so pissed right now i always say going to du is such a unique experience for the person of color because it it will test you in ways that you cannot imagine um and it's kind of like that double-edged sword where there's a lot to gain, but there's also a lot to, you're compromising a lot. So I felt like a lot of the times I was, like, being pulled into different sides. And, again, I had really helpful people, like, Professor Escobedo talked me down a lot, um, trying to get me to calm down. She's just like, that's part of, like, being the historian. Like, you don't really get to give your feedback until the very end, if you get to give your feedback, like, I had Professor Ramirez, who um, was super helpful as well, like, he was like, you know what, that's just, that comes with being a scholar, like, a scholar of color, like, we can change that, we can fight to change that, but until that change happens, you got to continue playing the game, and, like, here's the game of the white man, you know, like, You have to, especially when you're in their institutions where it's made for them, it's not made for us. Um, You have to play their game better than they play their game. Otherwise, you will never be successful in their institution. Um, And so that's basically what I had to do. Like, play play the white man game better than the white man. It was a struggle. It was very emotional. There was a lot of times where I would go for days without even looking at the project or thinking about it because I was so mad Uh, and I was just like the more and more that I got confronted with it and then on top of the mental toll that COVID had I was just like there was a lot of times that I was at very low like levels mental health wise Um, and so I thankfully you know I have my sorority sisters the sisters that I talked to um that were very supportive of, of course like all the people that I talked to from LSA were very supportive um and then I really looked forward to all the interviews I did because it gave me like a better sense of okay so this struggle is not an independent struggle like it is but it isn't like I also have a hard time putting people down. I didn't want to let anyone down. And when you're kind of playing on the side of the institution that's harming so many people, it's hard to be like, I don't know. I just, I wanted to make my community proud of me without like upsetting anyone. And like, remember this project, it was just kind of handed to me. It wasn't like I was looking for it, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for, so I just, I didn't want anybody to be disappointed in me, and so that took a big toll on me as well.
3: I'm really glad that, like, I've gained the language and the terminology to describe my experiences, to relate to the communities I'm a part of and the worlds around me, but it was really tiring to have to leverage these like intellectual responses to things that were happening at DU that were honestly pretty traumatic and so I think it left me with a lot of anger that I think I'm still struggling to figure out what to do with and that I really enjoyed my writing but I think like having to suppress some of that rage like led to it manifesting in like other parts of my life and I guess that like student activists are very often having to fight so hard for making DU um, a better place for like future students of color that I think it has really really lasting effects on them even after they graduate.
0: Both Kiana Marsan and Grace Carson have been heavily involved with the DU Clarion. Kiana specifically was a former editor-in-chief of the Clarion and Grace Carson was a former executive editor. While they've both written beautiful pieces and really dedicated their time to racial justice and advocacy for creating better practices at DU to better support the BIPOC community and have also provided the much needed BIPOC representation in the newspaper, their publications have not always been welcomed with open arms.
3: So the Clarion,
0: um, I think is unique from other student boards
3: in that um quite a bit of our readership is made up of alumni um it's how a lot of alumni who care um who like want to keep up with du postgrad like get their information about what's happening at the university um and so this meant that whenever i would write an article about um no more pios about racial justice um the white alumni who felt very attached to pioneer um, or to their whiteness um would respond to it on facebook um, there's a blog online it's called let's go du um it's an alumni blog and um an example is that i wrote an article about the Rar protest, um and they also like at, i think maybe a couple days later um they caught wind of it and they um for one like used the picture that we had um used in an article it had been taken by one of her photographers um they technically shouldn't have used that picture at all um, and they also just like took out quotes from my article and um used them to um like advance their own agendas with pioneer and with keeping pioneer um and there was also a lot of comments on that article um talking about how the clarion like is going in a bad direction that i'm specifically leading the clarion in a bad direction um and it was just like one of those things where like I could just like couldn't stop reading the comments, you know, like once I saw them, I was like, I like couldn't stop myself from continuing to read them because I don't know, I think, I think you want to know like what people are saying about you, even if it's not good, even if it's not healthy for you. Um, so yeah, there were just like, I don't know. There was probably like at least like 20 comments of people who were using my article to get mad at what RAR was doing to get mad at specifically um, Prof. Johnny, who no longer works at DU. Um, he was um, someone who had gone to the protest, who had helped support the organizers of RAR, um, and who had been a teacher and mentor to me as well. Um, and they were calling for his removal, for him to get fired, and um, he didn't, but, now he's not at DU anymore. Um, he eventually left, um, and I'm happy for him that he's in a healthier space, but I think it does speak to the problems that DU has retaining professors of color. Um, and so there was that incident, and there was also after the Atlanta shooting, um, I wrote an article um, about a lot of the anger and fear I was feeling. It was Kind of the first time in an article I had chosen to um, talk about like my emotional response to what was happening. Um, often in the Clarion, since I was writing for the news section, I felt like um, I felt like I like since I had to be unbiased, I could only portray. Um, what I felt and what I thought through the people I interviewed, through the evidence I provided, I very often um, had to like portray myself as intellectual and academic. And I couldn't just like say that I was angry or that I was upset or that I was afraid. But with that article I did, because I think it was towards around when I was graduating and I don't think I was in the editor in chief position anymore. Um, And so it was a pretty like emotional piece about just like how hard the day after the shooting was for me and i had people email me um harassing me like saying like i don't know um i don't know just like making fun of and patronizing my fear i guess um i also had um an article that was written about like that piece um in this like conservative um and in a, in a different conservative blog um, that essentially did the same thing, um, just like taking this like very vulnerable um, work that I had done and using it to um, like complain about like how liberal universities are and how they're um, teaching students to you know that to be afraid of white people and that they're oppressed um, as if that's not already their lived experience
1: and then my second year was the year i started writing for the clarion um, and writing all these opinion pieces and i started getting like threats from alumni and i that was the year i got stalked by one of these like white supremacist students i reported it to du me and then actually another black uh woman student were getting stalked by this white male person who was i can't remember i know it's um right now it's turning point usa but before turning point usa there was another organization it's like du for free speech or something i can't remember what they're called um but anyways he was part of this like right wing it was like honestly kind of all right at that point but had wrote this like really like problematic opinion piece for du clarion basically saying that like like demonizing black women and it was just it was incredibly racist and we we decided not to report uh not to you know put it in our 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 newspaper just because of the incredible amount of harm it did um and he was obviously upset with that and would stalk me and he also stalked my other friend uh and yeah I went to DU and we we both reported it and DU said they didn't have enough evidence and there was nothing they could do and then it's like cool I uh i all by myself in this you know i don't I, I hopefully i'm safe i don't know um yeah we like made safety plans together where either we'd walk together or we'd walk with friends but we'd never walk alone
0: thank you for listening to another episode of the rage podcast if you are enjoying listening to legacy please be sure to tune in to the following episodes The R.A.G.E. podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at iris.edu.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. For R.A.G.E. opportunities and updates, be sure to follow our social media pages, You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Again, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Rage Podcast, and we'll catch you next time.